Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's the second beatitude at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. The first beatitude, which we looked at last week, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggarly poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says, I declare you blessed. That's what that means. I declare you fortunate. I declare you happy. Happy are those who are unhappy. That's what Jesus says. Why does he say that? Happy are those who are unhappy. Blessed are those who mourn? Does that really make any sense? I mean, Americans really don't do unhappy, do we? We do happy. We're experts at happy. We like happy. And that's how we are perceived. We are. I know this. Last summer, when Sarah and I had the opportunity to go to Turkey, we, uh, the, uh, two days before I got back on the plane to go home, uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to get a haircut. So I went to a Turkish barber shop. I thought that would be a good experience. So our host, who took care of us, Najet, he took me to this barber shop. And this 20-something-year-old Turkish uh, uh, young man, barber, you know, started away. And so I thought I would just engage. And so Najet was interpreting. And I had asked him, have you ever been to America? And um, he said, no. Would you like to go? He says, oh, yes. You live near Chicago. Everybody asks me, do you live near Chicago? Yes, I live near Chicago. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But then he asked me this question. He said, why are Americans always happy? It totally threw me. Huge curveball. Never would have, never would have thought. We thought, you know, thought he would ask a little bit about, you know, something in Chicago or something in America. But he just wanted to know why are Americans always so happy? I mean, what, what was it? I sighed and uh, I prayed, and then I said, "Well, this American is happy because he's in Turkey's best barber shop. That's, <laughs> you know, he had a sharp object in his hand. What am I gonna say?" But we do, we, see, we do happy. This, this, this blessed are those who mourn. We kind of, we, we, will, we will allow for a, a tear that's shed on some reality TV program. But the idea of this continued type of sobbing, heaving, weeping, mourning, we kind of want you to, to maybe, you know, you can do that. We're going to send you a, card, spray of flowers, but then when you get back to your cubicle at work, it's time to be in Happyville. 
wherever you, whatever that is. We want you to go from unhappy town to happyville. We want you to do it really, really quickly because there's work to do. That's why. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of how it is, at least in our culture. And, and that's not the way it was in Jesus' culture because they knew how to mourn back then. The mourning that would happen at the loss of a loved one would be this heaving, grieving, tearing of the clothes, scooping up of dirt and pouring over your head. They even had professional mourners that would be hired to come in to an occasion. Now, we think of that as the most disingenuous thing. But no, that was a part of the whole culture of this community of mourning that took place. And, and we just kind of want people to feel better. Uh, we, you know, we, we're more hushed and rushed about the whole thing. And, 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 and we want them to get to Happyville and get there fast. That, that's, really how, that's really how it is, unfortunately. But the father of the teenage daughter who was killed in that car accident, he doesn't want to go to Happyville. Everybody else wants him to go there. But he does not want to go there because he does not want to feel better. Because to go back to Happy would be, would be on par to forgetting her, and he does not want that. He does not want to forget that he loved her. And here's how it was put. He couldn't banish his hurt because he had not stopped loving. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How many of you could talk about this unmistakable presence of God in the midst of this profound, painful grief you've experienced. Grief and God's presence often go together, don't they? Yeah. And still, when I look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, I'm convinced that there's something deeper going on that Jesus wants us to listen to. Something, something else in these verses. Because, because, you see, the Beatitudes are a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount have to do with life in the kingdom of God. It's this, these, this characteristic, this, this, this descriptor of what kingdom people are like. And so, so Jesus is wanting this to get, get something deeper than, than comfort and grieving, which is necessary and good and important and wonderful and there's something deeper. So I want to get to the deeper. I want to ask the question, what is Jesus talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn? We're going we're to first look at what he's not talking about. And then we're going to get to what he is talking about. Because there's a story behind Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And then we will see what God's comfort is for those who mourn. All right, so that's where we're going this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. Mourn. Now, let's make sure we understand what the word mourn means. The word itself has to do with, with grieving and heaving. Being so overwhelmed with a grief that that grief just takes possession of us to the point that it just cannot be hid. It can't. I, I think we've covered that, but that's to be sure. That's what we're talking about there. Huh? But, but 
Mourning over what? That's the question. Well, what is it that Jesus actually wants us to, to mourn over? Well, I can, I can tell you with absolute confidence what he's not talking about. I mean, I, I, I know what he's absolutely not talking about. Let's make sure we get that clear. He's not talking about the kind of diabolical mourning that sometimes occurs when uh, sinister evil people don't get their way. And thus they kind of are sullen, mourning, because, because evil's not being done the way they want it done. I'm thinking of 2 Samuel chapter 13, when Ammon mourned because he couldn't have his sister, Tamar. Diabolical mourning. Yeah, he was sullen over that. I'm not, uh, I, I, Jesus is not blessing that. Uh, Jesus is not blessing the kind of diabolical mourning that King Ahab had when he was lusting after Naboth's vineyard. I mean, he was the king of the land, but he wanted this little, this little postage stamp of property. He liked it, and he wanted it, and he was just sullen because of that. He mourned. That's not what Jesus is talking about either. Sometimes people mourn because because, you know, they're doing the wrong thing and it's not getting done. You know, sometimes people mourn over the right decision. You know, I'm talking about Pharaoh in the Old Testament, who after he let God's people go, he mourned. <laughs> he repented that he had done right. <laughs> Jesus is not blessing that. And furthermore, you know, he's not blessing those who are sorry they got caught, Right? Right? Remember what mom said? Are you sorry? Or are you sorry you got caught? Huh? I know. I talked to her this morning. <laughs> and I know that Jesus isn't talking about the kind of mourning that takes place when, um, you know, over lost, lost love relationships that, that I... Therefore, here on my favorite country music radio station, you know. <laughs> Last time I saw her, it was turning colder, but that was years ago. Last I'd heard, she'd moved to Boulder, but where she's now, I don't know. There's something about this time of year that spins my head around, takes me back, makes me wonder what she's doing now. Because what she's doing now <laughs> is tearing me apart, filling up my mind and emptying my heart. I can hear her call each time the cold wind blows, and I wonder if she knows what she's doing now. Well, I can tell you what she's doing now. She's gotten over you. <laughs> I mean, you won't, you won't marry her. You won't support her. You just want to move in with her. So she's wised up and you need to grow up. That's what she's doing now. <laughs> Jesus is not blessing that kind of mourning. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is he talking about, though? Let's, let's get to that. It's time. 
What is he talking about? Well, there's a story behind Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The story centers a, a, a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. I believe we've got the verses up on the screen. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Here it is. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There's the story there. You see, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Isaiah 61, 2, to comfort all who mourn. That's what's going on in Jesus' mind. Furthermore, when in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, that was the very passage of Scripture that Jesus Christ quoted when he began his public ministry. When he said, these verses are fulfilled in the hearing today, now. Because these verses have to do with exile. God's people being in exile. God's people being in activity and the mor- uh, in captivity. And the mourning that's going on is, is a mourning that Isaiah speaks of and a mourning that Christ speaks of. It's a mourning that occurs because all is not as it should be. Mourning because the righteous suffer. Mourning because the saints are being targeted. Mourning because the meek have not inherited the earth. Mourning because the enemies of God are mistreating the people of God. Mourning because there is hunger and injustice Mourning because God's will has yet to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mourning because the conditions of exile have left God's people marginalized and powerless and hopeless and helpless. That kind of mourning. The kind of mourning that occurs when God's people realize that if someone does not break in from the outside, we cannot get out of this by ourselves. That kind of mourning. Furthermore, the kind of mourning that we see today in our world. The kind of mourning that I saw in Nepal. Um, Tim Robertson and I saw when we went. Uh, one of the places where we went was a children's home. And I want you to see a couple of uh, images. Can we get those up now? There's the children's home. And these are just precious children. And, uh, and, and you know, they just craved love. I was honey and they were ants. And they we just swarmed all over. And 
you'd have thought this little guy just had a wee in his hand, that tooth, that little, that little beanie uh, baby and that, uh, uh, that toothbrush was just, uh, that was it. That was treasure. I mean, and, uh, and then we had, uh, we, we had dinner. We, the adults watched the children eat, and that was their big meal for the day. And uh, uh, you, it's, it's deceptive because it really is quite dark there. Uh, the light that you see there is the light from the camera. It's just a candle there that's happening. And because uh, the electricity, it's just maybe six hours a day, and you're not sure which six hours. And, uh, and then they began eating. And uh, I remember that picture being taken and just what was going on in my heart as I looked at these children who were in that children's home to escape human trafficking, who were in that children's home uh, because they had simply been abandoned uh, by their parents. And uh, there was really, I mean, who is going to take care of them? And care of them. They're, they are in a safe and wonderful place that Sundar and Sarita Tapa help, help lead. And, uh, you know, just, just watching all of that and how, how, how all of them, they waited quietly till every plate was served with food and placed at the table. Every, every, everyone was served. Then the prayer, then they ate. And uh, I'm just going, Lord, you know, I, you know, why does, a, why does a world have to be the way it is that we need to rescue children or else they're going to be trafficked as slaves? Why? Why? That's the kind of mourning that's going on here. The kind of mourning that Psalm 119, verse 136 says, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. That's, that's what we're talking about there. That's the kind of mourning. Mourning that when we look out into this world, we see that God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. But we're not there yet. We're not at ground zero at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We're not. Because in order to get to ground zero, in order to get to the, to the epicenter of this verse, we have to recognize and we have to come to grips with the hard, raw truth that to mourn is not simply to mourn that God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven, but it is to mourn that God's will is not being done in my heart, my heart, as it is in heaven. That's what we're talking about there. And that's the hardest thing to have to admit, isn't it? Because I want to I talk about what's wrong out there. But in order for me to really look at the ugliness of what's in my life and my heart that I don't know that I want to go there. I don't know that I want to go there. And a guy by, Greg Gil, uh, by the name of Greg Gilbert has written a book called What is the Gospel? And he raises this point when he says this. He says, it's always interesting to watch what happens when people who insist that God would never judge them come face to face with undeniable evil. Confronted with some truly horrific evil, then they want a God of justice. And they want him now. They, they want God to overlook their own sin, but not the terrorists. Forgive me, they say, but don't you dare forgive him. You see, here it is. <laughs> 
Nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. And yet, that's the bullseye of Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. When I am willing to look into the mirror of God's word and, and, and truly say, Lord, it's me, I'm the one. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And, and, and you know what? If we'd, ha- if we'd had church 200 years ago, uh, there would have been a very visible piece of furniture in a worship room like this, and they called it the mourner's bench. The mourner's bench. Where people could come when they could come to ground zero of Matthew 5, 4 and realize Man, there's evil going on in my life. I'm the problem. I'm the problem, you know? And uh, that's a hard thing. And a lot don't want to go there. And so, and so they settle for the opposite of mourning. You know what the opposite of mourning is, don't you? The opposite of mourning is not joy. The opposite of mourning is not happiness. The opposite of mourning is denial. Denial. That's what the opposite of mourning is. Denial. Denial. It's not a problem. I don't have a problem. You have a problem, but I don't have a problem. Denial has to do with covering up, blame shifting, white lies, hiding, sneaking, manipulating, avoiding, being silent as a way of avoiding, changing the subject, rationalizing. And then after denial comes self-deception, right? Oh, just one more time. It won't hurt. It won't hurt. Uh, you know, look, I've got $8,000 on my visa already. What's another $47? That's, a do- that, that, that's denial. Well, okay, if I can only do it once, then that's self-control, you know? Or, or you know, if, if he wouldn't treat me that way, then I wouldn't do that. That's denial. Well, I'll just, I'll go, I'll just hang out with my friends and I won't do anything. That's denial. That's denial. And, and the thing of it is, when... We are in denial. We will not mourn. We won't. People who are in denial do not mourn. And so, and so the, the wall comes up. And do you know, at that point, <laughs> the God of heaven and earth, they, he loves us so much that he will take out three very effective tools to break down the wall of denial in our lives. And the first tool is crisis crisis john baker talks about this in his book life's healing choices crisis i'm talking about illness due to years of abusing your body stress brought on by workaholism or job loss due to inappropriate actions divorce due to infidelity i'm talking about catastrophe where we are in denial to the degree that god says okay you want to be in charge fine And he backs off. And then, once he backs off, I mean, the the decisions, the unwise decisions that we have made, we begin to reap what we sow. Catastrophe. Crisis, catastrophe. And then, confrontation. (laughs) Somebody cares enough to look you in the eye and they say, you're blowing it, you're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your health. You're losing right now. And, 
and you get confronted, and you got someone in your life who's willing to do that, blessed are you. Pardon me. There's an old saying in Texas. If somebody calls you a horse's rear, ignore it. If two people do that, look in the mirror. If three people do that, buy a saddle. If three people call you a workaholic, buy a saddle. If three people say you have trouble with substance abuse, buy a saddle. If three people say you need help, go get a saddle. See, God's using this. He's using these tools to eat away at this denial. And and what, what do we do when pain comes? Pain is like a fire alarm. And it goes off, it warns us there's something wrong happening in our lives. But what do we do? I mean, what would we do at home? When the smoke alarm, when the fire alarm goes off, what do we do? We're just going to turn the music up louder? We're just going to talk louder? Somebody throw a rock at that thing to get that, get that out. No, we don't. We, we, what is the source of that alarm? But often in our life, when we hear the pain coming out, we just try to cover it up. And sometimes we cover it up with food or alcohol or sex or just work. But God's using these three C's to get our attention. And I I love this quote that Baker gives here. Listen to this. He talks about a redeemed, someone who's redeemed from their denial, put it this way. The acid of my pain finally ate through the wall of my denial. The acid of my pain finally ate through the wall of my denial. And when the wall comes down, well, then we can start mourning, truly mourning at the, at, the, at the ugliness of our depravity. You know what that looks like, don't you? A poet by the name of Reed Isaac painted me this picture this week. Listen to this. In charge, on top of things, integrity, courage. I try to be like that, Lord. And most of the time, I'm pretty good at it. I bear my share around the house, around the office. I work hard. People depend on me. Sometimes I'm tough, but I'm reasonable. I get a lot done. Sometimes I have bad luck or take a job too big for me, and things don't work out the way I like. But I'm a fair man. I don't ask anyone to do something I wouldn't do myself. That's the way I am Or that's the way I thought I was. Last week my secretary quit because she said I was thoughtless and unreasonable. She's a good secretary. I didn't want to lose her. I I don't know what happened. I thought she knew I appreciated her. I gave her raises when I could. I took her out to lunch now and then. I know I criticized her work sometimes and even lost my temper with her. But that's part of the job. My work gets criticized more often and less fairly. She said I didn't respect her as a person. I couldn't believe it, so I went home. And when I got home, I got no sympathy from my wife. 
She said my secretary was right and launched into a diatribe about how thoughtless I was at home, how neglectful of her and the children, how bossy and authoritarian I had become. And she went on and on. And as she talked, everything I believed about myself began to come apart. The kind of man I was, the kind of father I was, the kind of employer I was, all of it eroded by the acid of her tongue. And suddenly I knew that deep down somewhere in this woman I loved, there was a pool of hurt and anger that I had never glimpsed. I had hurt her. But I didn't understand how I'd done it. Or how I could be different. And I began to cry. And she began to cry. And I reached out to her. And she held me and I held her. We really do love each other. But where do we go from here? Is is there a life for us beyond this death see that's the question isn't it is there a life for us beyond this death when we get to the point where we're able to look at God's word in the mirror and we see the death that is decaying us see what then what what happens what happens when I become so vulnerable and I allow myself to realize when the acid eats away? I mean, what's going to happen? Will, will, will I be crushed, shamed? Is all hopeless? What? No, it's not hopeless, you see. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? comforted they'll be comforted this this strong word mourn is is then followed by this even stronger word comforted comforted you're not going to be crushed when you come to grips with that which really ought to cause mourning in your life you're not going to be you're not going to be uh, squelched quenched You're not, because God's comfort is now going to come upon you, because it's going to be divine comfort. And this is what we need to understand when we get the word comfort, because we're not just talking about the kind of comfort that you and I get when we buy a new king-size mattress. That's not what we're talking about. And we're not talking about the kind of comfort that we get from a Kleenex box. We're not. We're we're talking about parakaleo kind of comfort. That's the kind of comfort that Jesus is talking about. It's a very strong word, parakaleo, which means to call alongside to oneself. That's what it means. It means to summons. Summons for the purpose of Encouragement, consolation, instruction, discipline, teaching, 
All of these different dimensions of biblical comfort come from the God who comes alongside of us and calls us to himself and coaches us and instructs us and teaches us and chastises us and exhorts us and pushes us and strengthens us. That's what we're talking about. It's the kind of comfort that says, you're not alone in your tears. God exists. You're, the kind of comfort that says, you're not unwatched. God cares. It's the kind of comfort that says, things are not hopeless or out of hand. God has the power. God exists. We matter to him. And he has the power to help. And that's what he did when he sent his son. About whom 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we have, we have an advocate. That word means comforter. Parakaleo-er. The one who comes alongside to encourage and coach and console and instruct. And what Jesus did was, he said, I want you to come alongside. I'm going to carry your sin. I'm going to carry what was at the core of your mourning. I'm going to carry that. And we're going to nail it to the cross. And I'm going to die for that. And I died for that. Now trust me. Trust me, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what God provides for us. When we mourn over the ugliness and we're at the end of ourselves, we turn to him. I'm giving you my son. Furthermore, get this, church. He, Jesus sends his spirit about whom he calls in the Gospel of John, the comforter. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit, comes into the life of every believer to walk with us and teach us and coach us and strengthen us, doing for us what we cannot do ourselves. The Holy Spirit pushes me and empowers me. He, he has comfort that he gives me that then he wants me to share so that I can be an encourager. And so this cycle of mourning and comfort, mourning and comfort continues. Having been cleansed of sin, I am being cleansed of sin so that now I can help others and give the comfort that I've given so that now I see as God sees. I see as God sees. Because, you see, the mourning never goes away. The mourning never goes away. Biblical mourning is not this morose e or type of glum, but the redeemed believer has the mourner's mist in his or her eyes, because now those tears become, become glasses through which I'm able to see the world. I see the world through the, through the tears that I've cried, which Jesus has redeemed And I see things through my tears that I never would have seen dry-eyed. Never. Dry-eyed, I would look past the pain or the hurt. Dry-eyed, I might just dart off, disregarding the insurgency that's going on in this world by the evil one. 
but with the tears of Christ in my eyes, still misting through my eyes, those who mourn, those who belong to Christ, they're going to see a future that has not yet come. The mourners are aching visionaries. That's what they are. Mourners have a holy discontent. Surely things can be better, can't they, God? Surely things can be better in my world. Surely things can be better in my office. Surely things can be better in my marriage. Surely things can be better in in my neighborhood. Surely, God, things can be better. God, can you use me? Can you? See? See, you're putting on a lens now. You're wearing and you're seeing life through the it's a mourner's mist is what it is. Rick McNary had that in his eyes eight years ago. Rick McNary came back from a trip to Nicaragua after an experience with starving people, starving children, and he just uh, he determined that it was his calling to be part of the work of God to eradicate poverty. And so planning and putting together this ministry of feeding the poverty-stricken, and the big launch was going to take place in December of just this past year. After this years of planning, the big launch was in December, and, and since the average person in Haiti lives on just less than two bucks a day, well, that, that was the obvious place to get food to that country. That was in December. And then the earthquake hit. See? Then the earthquake hit. And, uh, and it's an incredible story. And many of you are in that story now. If you were at the Hobby Lobby, old Hobby Lobby building yesterday with New Manna and Salvation Army, Rick McNary from El Dorado, Kansas, leads this ministry. And what do we have? 880,000 meals were prepared yesterday and they had to cancel some of the shifts so that they could give some folks today a chance to be a part of it. They could have finished it last night, but let's, you know, let's let everybody get a part of it, you see. Be a part of it. You get that mourner's mist. You, you understand? Those who truly mourn they are the ones who end up doing something. You know, Jesus just didn't say, I'm really sorry for your sin, Randy. I mean, this is just awful. It's terrible. It's terrible. See ya. He didn't do that. He put the cross on his back. True mourning leads you to do something. And tears become this lens through which then action can occur, through which we see the needs and the hurts of the real world. The world as it is. But in seeing those needs, we meet those needs. Tears produce transformation. That's what I'm talking about. That's what the preacher named Clarence Jordan was talking about. When he said, you'd better watch out when a fella gets that certain gleam in his eye and a certain set to his jaw, he's getting ready to mourn. 
And she's going to be awfully hard to stop because she will be receiving tremendous strength and power and encouragement. She will receive the mighty comfort of Christ. And with such comfort, dreams become deeds. Oh, church family. (laughs) That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Heavenly Father, so we come to this table, this table of communion, and we mourn. We're sitting on the mourner's bench because we're the one standing in need. We're the one who's impoverished. We're the one we need your help. And I thank you so much that you just, you just didn't give us a Kleenex. You gave us your son, whose nail-scarred hands pinned what caused my mourning, pinned it to the cross. But you didn't stay dead either. And in your resurrection and in the sending of your Holy Spirit upon your people, You have now comforted us, empowered us, strengthened us, teaching us, coaching us to go out and heal as we've been healed. In your name, amen.